All right. Hey, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming to uh, my talk here on the Parables, gang. I know uh, we're a little behind, but, uh, but I think it's going to go smooth. I won't keep you for too long because I know there's going to be a screening of uh, Normie, and we've got some big events tonight with the official launch of Seculosity, which is uh, obviously a great book, uh, and if you haven't gotten it yet, you should. Uh, so today, I'm going to be talking a little bit about uh, the parables. Uh, my friend uh, and co-host of the podcast, 30 Minutes in the New Testament, Dan Price, and I wrote a little book about the parables called Scandalous Stories, in which we tried to say even something remotely more creative than Robert Capon. We failed, but uh, it's not bad. It's not bad. So you should uh, check it out. And uh, so Dave asked me to, uh, to say a few words about the parables today. Uh, so a little bit about, about me. For the last three plus years of my life, uh, I've worked to plant a church here in New York City. City uh, called Epiphany. It's just just a few blocks away on 20th Street between uh, First and uh, Second Avenue, and so uh, that's meant you know lots of praying and lots of planning and lots of uh, meetings and lots of training and lots of fundraising and lots of other amorphous stuff outside of my control. Uh, but mainly, it has meant lots and lots of conversations with strangers, hoping to introduce them to the gospel. Um, and so you, I can actually have a picture of me doing such a thing. That's me trying to look very deep and intellectually engaged, talking to said stranger in a cafe. But I would do this, especially the first year and a half, almost every day, five days a week. I mean, it was just, and, and it would be sometimes, you know, seven, eight, nine hours a day of just talking to strangers. And I had the opportunity to talk with people from every walk of life, every social status, every religion or non-religion about Jesus. And if there is one takeaway I have, it is this. Most people that I spoke to were not actually rejecting the gospel. Uh, most people I've met are rejecting uh, what they were taught to associate with the word, the gospel. Uh, Christianity, by the definitions I heard, was uh, holier-than-thou people, people that thought they were better than you. Uh, Christianity was often described as what it was against, anti-this, that, I mean, fill in the blank. Um, in my experience in talking to people on the streets here, Christianity was never, at, at least at first, ever associated with the words grace or forgiveness, uh, mercy, go on down the line of the words we love here at this conference. You just didn't hear it. You just never heard it. It was always political. It was always about our stances on uh, various social issues, etc. So, uh, I also found out that most people that I spoke to um, believe that Christianity, if it did do anything for you, it was a to-do list. So, you make a to-do list, and then you check off the above item after the task is completed, and so on and so forth, and it never ends. The to-do list goes on and on and on and on. I met numbers of people that had grown up in church somewhere that had taught a Christianity that was based on this so that by the time they got here to the city, they were like, no thanks. I'm getting off that guilt treadmill right now 
and New York City is a place that I can do it and no one will care. Like, I mean, that was so often what I came across, people that did not want that experience. Um, I have a friend uh, named Gretchen Ronovich. She writes for Christ Hold Fast, uh, a website that, uh, that I will write for and that we do podcasts for and things like that. Uh, and she told uh, Dan and I a story. We had interviewed her a little while back about a Muslim woman in Australia that she had started corresponding with. And uh, at the time, Gretchen had started a knitting business that became pretty successful. And at the same time, she was blogging about her personal life and faith. And because of the success of her knitting business, many of her readers uh, were those that did not consider themselves Christians. They just happened to find her knitting really appealing and then stumbled upon the stuff she wrote about her faith. And uh, she told us of one time a Muslim woman from uh, Australia contacted her about her business, and then pretty soon they were regularly corresponding. And in one email, she wrote to Gretchen uh, something like this. I know my contact with you is primarily because of the things you knit, but also I, I know that you know God. I don't, I don't think I do, but can you do me a favor? Can you ask him if I'm good enough for him? And then in the email, she proceeded to write out a list of the things that she considered good for Gretchen to present to God to see if she made the cut. Now, we're, we're all kind of naturally programmed like that. We think naturally that's kind of the way God operates, that he's grading on a scale and he's judging us on this scale. But then, then we overhear Jesus preaching the parables, and the parables declare to us a God who could care less about our list of accomplishments. As a matter of fact, he's a God that takes our list of accomplishments and rips them to shreds in the face of Jesus's accomplishment for us. And by the way, yes, that is a picture of the dad from Goonies ripping up the contract at the end, yes. So instead, they present a God who passionately pursues uh, scoundrels and nobodies and narrow dwells due to the accomplishments of his son, and that's what we're going to spend our time talking about. So, first of all, the scoundrels. Let's look at a couple of them. My two favorite examples from the parables of the scoundrels uh, are, of course, number one, the prodigal son, and then number two, the tax collector in the parable about him and the Pharisees. And uh, I won't hash out all the details because I'm guessing most of you in here know these stories pretty well. But just for review's sake, the parable of the prodigal son presents us with a rebellious, good-for-nothing scoundrel son that asks for his share of his inheritance from his father way too early. And we know, of course, in the ancient world that this was like telling his father that he didn't care if he lived or died. And eventually, the son squanders away his father's hard-earned money with partying and prostitutes, et cetera, et cetera. He ends up working for a pig farmer, longing to eat their slop because he's so hungry, and in a last-ditch effort to save himself, he thinks, maybe, maybe, just maybe, my father will take me just as a servant. I don't even need to be his son again. 
And to his great surprise, and guaranteed to the surprise of every one of Jesus' listeners, when he turns the corner on his way home, the father lifts up his robe, runs to him, and showers him with kisses, fully integrates him back into the family, and throws a gigantic party to celebrate his return. The second example of a scoundrel forgiven in the parables, accepted, embraced in spite of themselves in the moment is, of course, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee is presented as standing in the temple, praising God, mind you, but for all of his goodness, all of his accomplishments, but the tax collector, utterly aware of his scoundrel ways, simply beats his chest from afar and pleads, God, have mercy on me. And in Greek, it could be translated, and it should be translated this way, the sinner. Not just a sinner, which in most English translations is the way you read it. The sinner. He sees himself as the guilty one in that moment. And Jesus concludes the parable by telling us it's the sinner that, quote, goes home justified, saved. Indeed, in the life and ministry of Jesus, we see him really call people just like this. There's Matthew, the tax collector, who's in the middle of literally doing his collecting when Jesus calls him. He doesn't wait for him to be done with the collecting before he calls him. He comes to him in the midst of it. There's the wee little man, Zacchaeus who Jesus seeks out as he's hiding from him in a tree. There's the adulterous woman in John 8 who is not condemned but extended grace. Now, the scandal in all these stories, of course, is that at the time of their acceptance and forgiveness, they've done nothing to earn or merit this forgiveness from God at all. And that, that is what Jesus is teaching the world is factually true about God. That is, the Apostle Paul says, the God who has created the universe happens to be the God who justifies the ungodly. The exact opposite of what we ever expected could be true. And yet, as awesome as I think it is to think about forgiveness like this, it's not always well received. Anybody know who this this guy is right here? Serial Serial killer, yes. His name was the Green River Killer. Killed a number of women. Uh, He was being sentenced for his crimes, and during his sentencing, uh, one uh, one family member after another of those he had slain came up and told him what they thought he deserved. All throughout the trial, uh, or all throughout the sentencing, it was basically the same thing. You know, I, I hope that you go to jail for life. I hope you rot in hell. You don't know what you've taken from me. I hope you die. I hope you feel just a little bit of the pain that you've caused all of us. I mean, over and over and over again. And the entire sentencing, this serial killer stood there or sat there completely and utterly stone-faced. And then there was this one man. This is the father of a daughter who had been slain by the serial killer. He got up and just said in the most real and raw way possible, he said, Sir, I, uh, you have not made it easy for me to 
follow my Lord, but my Lord has instructed me to forgive my enemies, and so I just want to say to you, I forgive you. And at that, the Green River Killer took off his glasses and began weeping. You can see it, it's, it's uh, on YouTube. I think it was actually shown on A&E initially. Right after this aired, a friend of mine who was sort of dialoguing with me about Christianity was just, wanted to know more. She was an atheist, she and kind of, you know, proudly proclaimed that she was, but she was open. She called me after seeing this. And she did not think that this was a beautiful moment of grace or mercy. She was absolutely and utterly enraged. She was yelling at me on the phone. Is this what Christianity really is all about? And I, you know, I try to kind of calm things down and, you know, try to get some perspective and smooth out. But eventually I have to say, yes. Christianity is about God's ability to forgive the worst. Christianity is about God being able to do such a thing even to the people that we deem entirely unworthy of it, just people like you and me. And she said, well, if that's what Christianity is about, I don't want none of it. There is more and more a rejection of this as being an actual good. I don't know if some of you listened to the podcast Invisibilia, but I think it was their last episode. They had a, a show called The End of Empathy, and part of uh, what we were told in that show is that the younger generation, uh, younger generations have become fairly cynical about being empath uh, empathic towards their offenders. Indeed, uh, surveys show that in contrast to like Generation X people who were instinctively taught that empathy and compassion for, for even bad people was good, younger generations are 40% less empathetic according to however they sort of use these surveys or grade these surveys. And indeed, I remember a recent episode of This American Life had a segment that, uh, that ended with talking down the importance of forgiveness. The host of the show in Invisibilia at one point interviews a professor from Indiana about Indiana University about empathy. And he acknowledges that there is a danger in being empathetic, of course. There is a, a danger because, of course, empathy could let people get away with horrible things. But in the final analysis, he said this. He said, I, I, yes, it's dangerous, but we can't get rid of it because it accounts for 90% of what makes us human. So yeah, just to live, we, we, need, we need insane, crazy forgiveness. And it's not just people like the Green River Killer, it's you and, and I. Every once in a while, every once in a while, we get a glimpse of it in modern life of what such incredible forgiveness looks like. We know it when we see it, I think. And it causes us, even as we're sort of offended at the scandal of forgiveness for some, it causes us to sort of pause and step back and, and go, wow, there might be something almost supernatural here. I want to show you a clip 
that uh, it was a, f- a couple of years ago, a few years back in Egypt, the newscast, a woman who had just lost her husband to an ISIS bombing was being interviewed. So the, um, I mean, the language is in Coptic, but there is translation uh, underneath it. And the interviewer wants to know how this wife who's lost her husband feels about the whole thing. And I want you to notice what she says and then listen to his response. Which, by the way, the interviewer is, is Muslim himself. It's true, the world around us, even if they scoff at times at radical grace, knows they've come across something divine. Indeed, that's what the parables teach us. The parables teach us that's the character of God, to forgive the worst, most scandalous offenders. But it's not just the the scandalists uh, or or the scoundrels. It's the nobodies too. Uh, It's the nobodies too. My my favorite parable of God's pursuit of the nobodies is probably the parable of the wedding banquet. Um, It's such a wonderfully weird parable. I want to just read it to you, so don't mind me as I read this. Listen carefully. Jesus says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. 
The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and I cannot come. So this is where it gets really bizarre. The servant came and reported those things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. End of parable. What does Jesus say God is like? I'll, I'll take anybody. I'll compel them to come. I'll push them in. They don't want to come. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything in my power. I'm going to get them in. I'm going to get these nobodies that no one cares about in that society. The crippled, the blind, and the lame. These were people that you ignored. You walked by. They were probably that way because they had done something to deserve it after all. That was the theology then. Who does God say to go after? Get them. Look at the disciples he chose to run with him. No political power, no clout, no influence. If, uh, if Jesus had a PR guy back then, the PR guy would have been pissed. And this doesn't change for quite some time in the early church either. I mean, from the beginning, it's the nobodies that are most drawn to Jesus because somehow or another, they have this sense that he is more than happy to have them. There is a great example of this. This is a picture of quite literally a, a large wedding banquet, or it was to be a wedding banquet. Uh, turns out the groom got cold feet. They couldn't, they couldn't reverse their, uh, their order for the day. And so the bride was like, all right, screw it. Go out and gather as many people as you can on the streets and tell them they're going to have the best food they've had in a long time. And she filled the banquet hall with nothing but homeless people. It's a great story. At the church I attended as a teenager, there was a man who attended every Sunday named James, or more affectionately known as Brother James. That's what he would introduce himself as. I'm Brother James. James had a, an intellectual disability, and so he was a little bit behind his other adult peers and what he could understand and, and process. And there was a ritual with James, and everybody who attended the church on a regular basis knew what the ritual was. Every time the pastor would get up to preach, he would announce the scripture passage that he was going to preach from, and James would then take out his well-worn Bible and hurriedly turn the pages to get there, and when he would arrive at the passage, even if the pastor had already begun to preach, he would always, every Sunday, yell out, all right, I found it, praise God, <laughs> every Sunday. All right, I found it, praise God. My favorite thing about that church was that nobody would bat an eyelash about it. Everybody loved when James would interrupt. They loved him something fierce there. But of course, outside in the world, James was, was a nobody. But inside, he was attending a king's banquet. 
That's the God we're presented with in the parables, a God who goes out to the crippled and the lame and the blind and the nobodies, the people that haven't accomplished really much of anything important. He says, you, I, I want you. And, if, and even if you don't want to, I'm going to compel you to come in. So there's, of course, then, the ne'er-do-wells. I have to be honest, the only reason I chose that word is because I love the sound of that word. Ne'er-do-wells? How often do wells? Ne'er. Um, <laughs> now these are the people that have seemingly avoided God up until the last possible moment and then somehow get in. The great parable for this, of course, is the uh, parable of the laborers in the vineyard. There the owner goes out at the beginning of the day and hires a bunch of workers. Then halfway through the day, he hires some more, and he does the same a few hours later. And finally, he hires a bunch with one hour left in the day. And at the end of the day, when they all gather to get paid, they're all stunned because the ones who had only worked one hour are getting the exact same wage as the ones who had worked 12 hours. And the point of it all in the economy of God's kingdom is that it really doesn't doesn't matter when you start serving the owner of the vineyard, but just that you're brought into the vineyard at all to receive the same great prize. That is not a popular sentiment in our world. I came across this horrible meme the other day. It's of course meant to motivate you. It says, Mr. I'll do it later never became a millionaire. No more procrastinating, and apparently the company that made it is successes. Well, this parable says, uh, no, even if you procrastinated on, you know, the whole God thing your whole life, there's still room. I'll bring you in. Even if you waited until the last hour, most likely what's implied, by the way, by these laborers who God had waited to bring in until the last moment or, or who uh, got hired at the last moment is that probably... The reason they were hired at the last one is because they weren't doing anything all day. They were lazing around. They were avoiding it. And this is, of course, not popular because the, here, the scandal is that the procrastinators are rewarded the same as the diligent. And you can see in the story, the people that have worked 12 hours, which I would be one of them, by the way, in real life, I'd be like, nope, call on the labor board, you're in trouble. Like, this is, this is a scandal. This is a scandal, by the way. And the owner just says, my vineyard, tough. My rules, my vineyard, tough. Whether you've been in since you were a baby or whether you're coming in as a 90-year-old, everybody's getting the same wage. We don't like it because, well, it rewards guys like this. That is, of course, George Costanza in one of the more brilliant moments of his life, learning 
that he could actually get away with doing no things all day long and still get paid the same amount as everybody else. Uh, there's a scene in which he's talking to Jerry and he's like, all you have to do is just look annoyed every once in a while and people think you're working. Like, that's actually kind of true. Uh, but so the laborers in the vineyard are teaching us basically that, that, yeah, even those who have wasted so much time, even those who have wasted their life, still can get in. Uh, when I became a Christian, I was uh, into my sophomore year, 15, 16 years old. Um, I was passionate. I was one of those young zealots that was passionately trying to get everybody to come into the kingdom with me. I was trying to compel them in, you know. And uh, the person that I tried to do that with the most was my grandfather. My grandfather was my hero, uh, still is, World War II vet, tough as nails, but loved me to death. And so, of course, I'm like, Grandpa, I want you to know this Savior. And so I came to him and I said, I gave him my best pitch for why he should be a Christian. And to my great surprise and disappointment, not only was he not interested, I could tell he was deeply unimpressed with the fact that his grandson had become a Christian. So I tried again, and I tried again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and it just got worse. He just didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And then I went to seminary, I got trained in apologetics in the fine art of arguing for the faith, and I tried again. No go. My grandmother had gotten sick. My grandmother was my, uh, really my grandfather's life. Without her, he didn't, even ha he didn't really have an identity. My aunt and him are sitting at my grandmother's bedside. It's clear now that my grandmother is probably going to die. And my my aunt, who I did not even know was really a Christian herself. I hadn't really seen much of that. We'd never really talked about it. Looked at my grandfather and said, Bob, it's time to ask Jesus to be your Lord. And my grandfather said, okay. And for the last year of his life, before he died, I got to spend days with my grandfather serving him the body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. I got to preach the gospel into his ears and see him believe. And he was in his 80s and he had resisted his whole entire life. I have not a shred of doubt right now, not a shred of doubt that my grandfather, like these laborers in the vineyard, received the same reward as those who had lived their whole life faithful. So the question is, 
Why? Why does God go after the scoundrels, the nobodies, and the ne'er-do-wells? Well, I think the answer, I think the answer to that question comes from two very short, often misunderstood parables Jesus tells. They read like this, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's it. Two parables, a couple sentences. There are two ways that this parable is interpreted. Generally, it's interpreted like this. You are the merchant. You are the treasure hunter. You discover the kingdom of God, and it's so precious, so valuable, that you would give up everything to have it, and you do. That's not my view. As a matter of fact, I think that view shows how biased we are to want to make the Bible all about us. Because the main character in all the parables surrounding these parables isn't us, it's the Lord. And if that is the case with these parables, then the merchant is Jesus. And the pearl and the treasure is you. And what does he give up for you? Everything. Blood, sweat, tears, body, death for you. I love the fact that it even says to get you in the, to get it, he, he covers the treasure. He covers it up. What does he cover us up with? His righteousness. God finds scoundrels, nobodies, and ne'er-do-wells so valuable that he has no problem suffering everything to have them. So let me wrap this up, and then we can take some questions from you. I named this talk, as you might have noticed, Why Me, Lord? And uh, the, you can't see it now, although it's, you can kind of see shades of his body. But uh, it, the title is based on an old Chris Christopherson song that became quite famous. I think Elvis sang it. I think, uh, I mean, Johnny Cash sang it great. Uh, but it's based on Chris's own experience of being found at a time that he was not expecting to be found at all by Jesus and being forgiven at a time that he was not expecting to be forgiven at all. And he describes his experience of being so overwhelmed by a forgiveness he didn't even know he needed. Jesus came and got him. And so he wrote a song, wrote this song called Why Me, Lord, that asked what he had ever done to deserve it. And of course, the answer is he had done nothing to deserve it. He had done nothing to deserve it. But Jesus had done everything to have him. Anyway, I'm going to close us with a modern version of the song from my, uh, one of my favorite bands, a band called The Smoking Popes from the 90s. You can definitely tell I'm a 90s guy by that reference, but uh, kind of a power pop band. Uh, the, the lead singer of that band also had a conversion experience after having a mild bit of fame with, with The Smoking Popes. Um, 
a very mild bit of fame. Uh, <laughs> he had a song in the Clueless soundtrack. I mean, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, but uh, but found it not, you know, it didn't do anything for him. And he had his own conversion experience. And so he uh, he played this song. He re he covered it. And I've always been partial to it, and I love it. All right, let's let's hear from uh, let's hear from Josh Caterer. Why me, Lord? Thanks, folks.